to continue to dig into the Gospel of Mark. We are in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be digging into Mark chapter 11 even deeper. So Jesus is heading uh, to Jerusalem. And last week we talked about at the beginning of chapter 11, he has made it to Bethany and Bethpage. And then we have the triumphal entry as he comes in to Jerusalem and he comes riding in on the donkey. And and as we we get to the beginning of this, uh, the section of scripture, Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at chapter verse 11 to start with. But I asked a question this last week on Facebook. And I asked you this question. I asked all of Facebook this question. And it was awesome the amount of responses that I received. And and some of them were a little scathing of why I would ask that. And some of them were put on Facebook and others were emails and private messages to me of why would you ask that, Travis? And, And that's almost blasphemous to try to separate these. And I'm like, it's just a question of what you think, I promise, you know. But I asked a simple question. Do you believe Jesus is gentle or judge? Where do you see Jesus? And again, they were all over the place. And I wanted not just to ask it on the main church page, because I wanted to get non-Christians perspectives as well. How do they see Jesus? How do we see Jesus? You know, we're prone to pick one of those aspects of who Jesus is. Because we like one side of Jesus, but we want to ignore the other side. But Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. Because when we see who Jesus is and what Jesus is, we see him as truth and grace. We see him as Lord and Savior. We see him as judge and gentle. We see him as holy and humble, powerful and patient, awesome and approachable, sovereign and sympathizer. We see him as lion and lamb. And that is the way that Scripture lays out who our Savior truly is. And if we are going to truly understand this, we have to have a complete picture of who Jesus is. We can't just get comfortable with one side. But we like that, right? We, We pick out the caricatures of Jesus that we like. In our, um, in our wanting to promote certain characteristics of Christ that we like, we marginalize his majesty because we only want to see Jesus as graceful, merciful. We only want to see Jesus as love because that's the side that we like, because that's the side that we all need, right? But at the same time, when someone does evil to us, if they do harm to us, what do we want? We want the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth Jesus, We want the vengeful God of the Old Testament, as people say. We want justice, but we don't want it used on us. There's a big difference when we see those two. Some of us avoid the passages of Scripture that seem to paint Jesus as untamable, that that look at Jesus as being unpredictable, especially when his words make us wince and his actions make us very, very uncomfortable. So we go back to Facebook. The majority of you, over 60% of you said yes. Is Jesus gentle or judge? And you said yes. Or you said both. Or you said, why can't he be both? Because you're wondering, which one should I say? Is there a wrong answer? Is there a right answer? The answer is yes. He is both. And many people that did respond to me who weren't Christians, they want to see Jesus as gentle. 
They want to see Jesus as, as loving and caring, but all they see is the judgmental side, many times because of us. And so we have to make sure that we are painting the full picture of who Jesus is. Is. So today we're going to see that Jesus not only tips over the tables in the temples, but he also curses a fruitless fig tree. Both of these incidents teach us about the judgment of Jesus on the nation of Israel, but also serve as a warning to us. So when we look at these, we see the love inside of them of what Jesus was trying to do. You see, Jesus is servant and savior. He is sovereign. So go back to Mark chapter 11, verse 11, and this is what we read. So this is all in context of Palm Sunday. So all of this is happening on the first day of the week. This is what we read. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the phrase that he looked around, it means that the Lord was at the temple. He was up on top of the, the temple mount. And it means that he examined closely. He looked around at everything that was happening, but it was already evening, and he decided the best thing for him to do was to not stay in Jerusalem, but to leave and to go back outside, about two miles outside of town, to walk back to, to Bethany. This is where his friends, Lazarus, Mary, Mary and Martha, lived, and it was where Jesus is going to spend each night during Holy Week, he's going to travel back and forth. He is not going to take um, the, and we're going to see why here in a minute, uh, of the way that we see these scriptures. He wasn't staying in Jerusalem for a very specific reason. He had a plan. God has a plan. Never forget that. God has a plan for your life. And it's laid out, and all we have to do is follow the course that's laid in front of us. So, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, so now we're on Monday morning. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I love this. Your Savior, who is fully God, is also fully man. And I love the fact that we get this pointed out one more time for us. He's already been thirsty. He's already been tired. He, he understands weariness. He understands pain. He understands rejection. He understands loneliness. He Everything that you and I go through, our Savior has went through. Please never forget that. So, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to, it, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So, Jesus is hungry. It actually says that he, the, the literal translation is that he is famished. How many of you have ever said you're famished? You're not by any means, right? But you think you're starving to death. I, I love it when my kids tell me that. They've already eaten four meals and two snacks, and they're famished. Oh, Dad, I'm not going to make it. So, it. Jesus was hungry. He was famished at this point. I love this as well. I love all the connections that we see here. So when he arrived, we talked about this last week, he came to the towns of Bethany and Bethpage. Well, Bethany and Bethpage, do you know what Bethpage is known as? The house of figs. 
So he would have seen this tree coming. This is where the fig trees would have grown. So a few things to know about fig trees. Number one, they're big. They're tall. They grow 10 to 20 feet. Okay, so Jesus, he sees it at a distance, and now he's got to have a ladder to get up there, or maybe he climbed it like a sycamore tree. I, I don't know. Um, but he, he wants to see if there's any fruit. But they're very large trees with very large leaves as well. Adam and Eve covered themselves. You go back to Genesis, that they covered themselves with these very leaves. Figs are very sweet to the taste. How many of you like figs? How many of you like Newtons? Exactly. I like them both. When we were in Israel, I ate figs, but I'd rather just have a fig Newton, okay? But they're good. Fig trees also are the most fruitful of all trees. They produce the most fruit of, of all of them, producing a harvest sometimes three times a year. And figs were often used as the first fruits to be brought to the temple. Fig fruit comes before leaves as well. So, the, the, the time for the fig was probably already over, but it was in leaf, which meant it may have had some morsels still left on it, and that's what Jesus was hoping for. He wanted to find at least one that he could eat from this, so that's what we're seeing here as well. If there were leaves but no fruit, it also meant that there was probably disease that could have been on this very tree, and it was spreading. Death because of the disease, was on its way. That's going to come back to play as we continue reading the Scriptures. Look at verse 14. Jesus pronounces a curse on this tree, and it has a double negative. May no one ever eat from fruit from you again. Just as the fig tree had the promise of fruit, but was only filled with leaves, God's people had the outward show, but they had no fruit. Israel looked alive, right? We're going to find that. He, he's going to go into the temple. He's going to go up onto the temple mount, and he's going to find people hustling and bustling because Passover is about to happen. All of the people are gathered into Jerusalem at this time, and it's going to look like a town that's absolutely on fire and alive. However, it was actually dead. And because they failed to be fruitful, Jesus is going to judge them. Some have said that Jesus was angry because he was hungry. Actually, he was angry because he is holy. Now, we, we, we know that many, of, and I'm one of those, I get hangry. My granddaughter gets hangry. Like, you, you can tell that she hasn't eaten. You can tell when I haven't eaten for a while because I start to get that little bit of hangry. Jesus wasn't hangry here. Jesus was angry because he is holy. And please never forget that. By the way, apart from the drowning of the pigs when he cast legion into them, this is the only miracle of destruction that we see in the Gospels. Interesting that we find that the last week of Jesus' life. So after cursing the fruitless fig tree, the Messiah on mission, he is moving forward. Remember, that's our, our whole point. As we look through, Jesus is always in constant forward motion, and he's going to move forward getting to Jerusalem. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, 
Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes, listen, this is why he's not staying in Jerusalem in the evenings. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. They wanted to put him to death. That's what that literally means. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So when it says that Jesus entered the temple, so before, it took the temple was about, it took about 46 years to build the temple mount. Okay, so there's a a mount underneath. There was a small mountain underneath. And what happened was they Herod built this huge monstrosity of a, a temple mount, massive blocks, some the size that, that some of them are 50 tons, the size of these blocks. They're the size of the ones that were used in the pyramids, even bigger than the ones that are used in the pyramids to build this temple mount, to build it all the way up. There's this massive platform that covered acres and acres of land on top of it. And so this is the where all of the Jewish people would go. And then the temple was on top of this mount that was built up there that was completely flat. So all of this is, is up there. And when it says that Jesus entered the temple, he actually entered into the court of the Gentiles. It was the largest area on the temple mount. And this is where the non-Jewish people would go to pray to the God of Israel. And it, all people were welcomed for them to go up on top and be there. When Jesus got to Jerusalem, he made a beeline for the temple area. He began driving out those that were buying and selling. The, the, the literal translation is to eject or to force out with violence. He was angry of what he saw when he made it on top of the temple mount. While many wanted to, uh, Jesus to attack the Romans, he made a secret attack against religion. Like an Old Testament prophet, Jesus is acting out a parable only he's not acting. Jesus is indignant. Jesus is irate at what he sees happening on top. It, it makes me think back to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And, and this is not the first time that Jesus has been angry. We go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. As the disciples watched him explode with indignation, they quoted Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. When worshipers traveled a long distance, and remember, the, the area of Jerusalem, about 40,000 people. During Passover, it could grow to 250,000 people more. 250, 350,000 people would all come in. So travelers would pilgrim from all over, from all over other nations. They would come in to be there to make their sacrifice. Well, when they came in to make their sacrifice, it was extremely difficult to try to travel with your family to make the sacrifice, to, to, to bring a, a, a lamb with you because you would have to feed it. And, and lambs can be stubborn, 
Lambs don't always want to do what they're told when, when, when they know that they have to go somewhere. They're skittish, especially when they're by themselves, and, and, and it would be too much. They didn't want to carry the doves or the pigeons with them, so what would they do? They would just buy them when they got to Jerusalem, and all of this was totally okay. And, and when they would get there, they also had to pay the temple tax when they would come to town. This was okay. But when they had to pay the temple tax, they couldn't use Greek or Roman coins. So they had to exchange their money for temple money. All of this, again, is okay. What's not okay was what the people at the temple were doing. One, they were set up inside of the temple to sell. The area that was supposed to be for the, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, to come and to pray to God could you imagine all of the sounds of all of the animals and, and the ruckus that was happening and, and the changing of coins and all of that that was happening there? The exchange rate was exorbitant. Just the exchange rate itself was sometimes half a day's pay just for the exchange rate. If you, did, if, if, if you bought a pigeon or a lamb from outside of the temple and then you would come, do you know what they would do? They would find a flaw in it. So you would then have to buy and purchase one from them so they continued to make their money over and over and over again. We don't see that today, do we? Like none of that happens in, in America, right? No, uh -uh, we wouldn't see that. Think about how loud and chaotic it would be. And what does Jesus really want to get across as he sees all of this? He says, my, my house is a house of prayer. How in the world, I, I, and I don't know about you, I've talked about this before, my undiagnosed ADD kicks in if there's any type of sound and I can't focus. I have to, be, I have, to have, have quiet when I'm writing my sermon, when, when I'm working on something, when I'm trying to, to pray. I, I need absolute quiet for myself. That, that, that's personally what I need. Could you imagine trying to pray and you hear all of the lambs and you see all of the doves and the money changing, all of this happening? Jesus was indignant. Jesus was irate. And what does he do? There's three things that we see in Scripture that Jesus does. Number one, he overturned the tables of the money changers. Exchange rates could easily consume, as I said, half a day's wage for the average person. Jesus has no tolerance for this. He knocked over the seats of those selling the pigeons and the doves. What while coins are clanging all over the marble floor, feathers are flying everywhere, pigeons or doves uh, were used for, for the sacrifice of poor people so they could come in. And, and here, even the poor people couldn't even sometimes pay the rate that was coming in. So Jesus just, just starts flipping the tables, money's flying everywhere, pigeons are flying everywhere. Feathers are going all over the place. And what does he do? He blocked anyone from carrying merchandise through the temple courts. What happened, this was the easiest cut through. If you were on the Mount of Olives and you were needing to go into the other side of Jerusalem, well, you just came through the gate that was right there. You cut across the temple courts of, of, of the Gentiles and you just went right to the other side. We did it when we were in Jerusalem. It was a cut through to get to everything else. We just walked right through that whole area. And this was happening during the time that should have been very sacred to the Jewish people. 
And after preaching this sermon with tremendous visuals, he once again utilized a question to zero in on the main truth. Is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You know, Jesus uses the words as it is written over 60 times in the Gospels. He wants people to understand that we should know the Scriptures. You and I should know the Scriptures. Old and New Testament. We need to know what the Scriptures say. The people missed it because they weren't studying the Scriptures the way that we should have. Again, when we read this verse, we see two main points here. God's house is a, a house for prayer. Prayer must be first place. In our lives, prayer must have first place. And number two, God's heart, listen, is for all people. Not us for and no more. God's word is for all people. And we can never, ever forget that. The Bible teaches that God's people were to be a blessing to the people all around them. God had made provision for Gentiles to come to him because he is, listen, a global God. This was a place of missionary work, not a market. They were using it for their own gain, not for the gain of the glory of God. We must have the same mindset of what Jesus had. We must take this house and make sure it's a house of prayer and it is open for all nations. It is open for all people. Everyone is welcome to come into our family. You know, a lot of people go, you know, you hear me say all the time, hey, we're a family, we're a family, we're a family. Well, and we're a tight-knit family, and I truly believe that. Here's the problem. If we're a tight-knit family, sometimes when you get really, really close, you don't want anyone else to get in because they might mess it up. Well, here's the thing. There's always room for one more. There's always room for one more at the table. I love that. And we need to remember that. We need to make sure there's always room for one more to come in. It's not us four and no more. Jesus then quotes from Jeremiah 11, uh, 7, verse 11, to show that like thieves, these men were exhorting and stealing and then finding refuge in the temple. But you have made it a den of robbers. The phrase, you have made it, is a perfect tense, suggesting that it's a complete action. And as we look through this last week of Jesus' life, he's going to tell us that the temple's going to be destroyed. Because there's going to be no more reason for sacrifices as of Friday night and then Sunday morning. Let's pick up again at verse 20. We're going to come back to the fig tree. So Jesus is indignant. He's flipped all the tables. He stopped people from coming through. And then he's like, all right, it's time to go. I preached my sermon. It's time to go back to Bethany. He knows what people are going to try to do. And he says, okay, it's time to go back. And, and as they go back, as they passed by in the morning, so now we're at Tuesday morning, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter never gets it, does he? He's seen so many miracles and he's every time went, wow, that was awesome. Jesus, did you see what you just did? Yeah, I was just there. My daughter does that all the time. We're in the room, and the dog will do something, or the granddaughter will do something, and Jaden will say, Mom, did you see that? Dad, did you hear what? I'm sitting right here. And I think that's exactly how Jesus felt with Peter. 
many times did, and, and I think Jesus sometimes just wants to go, oh, Peter, when will you get it? But he knew, J Jesus knew. He knew what Peter was going to have to go through. But he had a plan for Peter. And every time that you have one of those moments where you're like, wow, God, that was amazing. God wants to look at you and go, last week, last week, do you remember what I did? And he wants us to point back. But here's the thing, he's not done with you. He wasn't done with Peter and he's not done with you. Please never forget that. Let's keep reading. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus is tying the tree and the temple together. Just as the big leaves concealed the lack of fruit, so too the beauty of the temple concealed the fact that Israel was not bringing forth the fruit of righteousness. And Jesus, again, is consistently tying things together. Peter calls the Lord's attention to the tree that is withered all the way down to its roots. What Jesus has done was effectual and immediate, fast and final. And according to Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, the fig tree withered at once. This was a miracle in itself that death started in the roots. We go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, and John the Baptist had this to say, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Please listen. When we stop bearing fruit, the problem always has to be traced back to the roots. We say it like this, if we have no fruit, check the root. Where's the root of your salvation? Where's the root of what you believe? If you find it waning and going to and fro, check the root. Make sure that your prayer life is solid. Make sure that you have close friends that you can turn to. Make sure that you are, we are relying upon one another. Jesus uses a tree in the temple to make his point that superficial showiness will be severely judged. Now he translates to use, transitions to use a teachable moment to the power of prayer in our lives. Look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. End of discussion. We just stop there, let's go home. He looked at Peter and he looked at the other disciples and he says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you in your trespasses. I believe that there are three parameters for prayer in this very passage. The first one, 
plain and simple. It's exactly what Jesus says. Put your faith in God. That's what Jesus says in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Literally translated, constantly be trusting in God. Too often we want to trust in ourselves, right? I got this. I can handle this situation. I'm praying. My prayer is what answered it. No, 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 no. It's God's power through your prayer. We have to have our faith solely in God first. Constantly be trusting in God. That's it. That's where it has to be. Having faith in God means that we are submitted to his will above our own. That's what it means. So put your faith in God. Number two, formulate your request to God. We dig into verses 23 through 24, and and this is, is what we see here in this passage. Truly I say to you, whoever. Let's just start right there. The word here, whoever. No matter who you are, no matter when you've come to faith in Christ, no matter how old you are, no matter whether your family grew up in church or not, whoever, that's what we see laid out right here in front of us. No matter who you are, what you've been through, whoever, remember that the power is not in the person praying, but in the power of the Almighty. So it starts with all of us, any of us, not most of us, not some of us, not, oh, it's the person to, in front of me or behind me, but my, my, my power and, and strength and prayer is not enough. No, Jesus says, whoever. And then he continues on. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes and what he says will come to pass. Therefore, I tell you, whatever. Look at that. The words there for for whatever, there's no circumstance or or situation where prayer is not profitable. As God says in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 37, is there anything too hard for me? Answer, no. Is there anything too hard for God? No. And if you ask the question, can God make a rock that's too big for him to pick up? No, because he wouldn't. Like, there's no reason to, well, but philosophy says, no, whatever you ask, God can handle. Please never forget that. This explanation, when when we look at all of this, um, a lot of people go, well, this scripture is, if you say, whatever I ask, it's going to be granted to me. This is not a name it and claim it. This is not a nab it and grab it. Like, that's not what all of this is about. Oh, I said it, so God has to answer my question. The pastor just said it. I want, to win the, I want to win the lottery. How does that glorify God? Well, I would give God 10%. And what would you do with the other 90%? That's the question, because if you look at the statistics of those that win the lottery, most of it's gone very soon, and they lose their family, and they lose themselves in all of that. The temple was built, here's the thing, when he says, whatever you ask, and if you ask this mountain to get up and, and go and toss it in the sea, what, what, what was he talking about there? Well, we could move forward, and we're going to talk about this in, in, in a little while. Mark chapter 13, verse 2. 
the temple was built, as I said, on top of a mount. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? He's looking around and he sees up on top of the temple mount and he sees all of the buildings. You see all these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Was that what he was talking about? We're not really for sure what that means. Luke 1.37 says, For nothing will be impossible with God. We must therefore be bold in our prayers. We must be bold in our prayers. Why? Because we serve a miracle-working God. Never forget that. We serve a miracle-working God. And that brings us to our final point. Grant forgiveness to others. We talked about that at the very beginning. We want a graceful, loving, merciful God for me. But I want God to bring vengeance on anyone who harms me. We need to grant forgiveness to others. It's exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. For some of us, the mountain in our lives is an unforgiving spirit. You're living on Mount Grudgemore. Let it go. When Jesus says to forgive, it means to blot out. It means to lift and to carry away. That's what he wants to do to our sin. And he wants to do to those that we have harmed as well. An unforgiving spirit can be a roadblock to our prayers because a forgiving spirit is evidence that our heart is right with God. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Don't hold on to those grudges any longer. Jesus says, let it go. It will be blotted out if we will just allow him to do so. Forgiven people forgive. Unforgiven people nurse grudges. Don't let grudges keep you from God. A, A root of bitterness can lead to the failure of fruit in your life and can keep your prayers from being answered. You and I have a choice to make. You have a choice to make here today. We can choose to hold on to our grudges or we can just lay it all at the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to forgive us and help us to forgive those that we have harmed as well or who have harmed us. James 2.13 adds, For judgment is without mercy to, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A message like this can invoke feelings of of guilt. We start asking ourselves, are we forgiven? Are we forgiving other people? Where am I at? Am I going to be seen as being fruitless? Am I I concealing something? Well, what, what do I do with that? It can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing because it's a good thing if we turn to God and we ask for that forgiveness and we seek after that, but it can also be a bad thing if we don't turn and repent and we just continue to hold on to it. So I ask you here this morning, what decision do you need to make right now where you sit? Do you need your sins just wiped away 
Do you need to repent for the very first time and accept Jesus into your heart? Do you need to have his forgiveness in your life? Today is the day that you can do so, but you must start today. Don't wait, don't put it off. Today can be the day that you have a fresh start. If you have, have been forgiven and you are living for him, but you've just kind of fallen off the trail, you, you can return to him. You, you can lay it all at the foot of the cross and say, God, please forgive me. If you need prayer in your life, I'm going to be in the back and the elders are going to be in the back. We'll, we'll pray with you. We're here for you. If you need to place your membership, today can be that day that you place your membership as well. It's up to us of what we will choose to do. We're going to take communion now, and if you haven't had an opportunity, you can pick it up at the four different stations on the sides or in the back. I encourage you, if you haven't gotten it, to go ahead and, and go get that. And we're going to take communion after I pray, and we're going to give you a, a few moments to just reflect on what is going on in your life. Whatever, whoever. That's what it comes down to. And if you need to come to the back to talk to one of us, we're here for you to help however we possibly can. Let's pray. Almighty Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your son. We see him moving forward, that he is not ashamed, that he is bold in what he does. We see his righteous anger coming out here today and Lord we know that you are always in control you are in control of everything that happens and so father I just ask that you be with everyone who has come and heard this message today that is listening online father that if there is forgiveness that they need in their lives that they will seek after you that if they need to offer forgiveness to someone that they will seek out that person. Father, we want our prayers to always be answered. We don't want any roadblocks in our way. Father, we, we don't want to be whitewashed tombs. We don't want to just have big leaves and no fruit. We want to be who you have called us to be to be a church that reaches all nations of all people. Father, that we will offer your forgiveness, that we will speak boldly of who you are, that we will hold firm to the scriptures. And Father, as we partake of communion, we remember what these emblems mean, that you went to the cross, that you died in my place. But Father, you didn't stay there that you took your son, you put him in the grave, but Father, he arose on Sunday. And that is what we always look forward to. That is what we always remember is the fact that he is alive. All other religions, they're all in the ground. They're all a bunch of idols, but your son is sitting at your right hand. And we thank you for that gift. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.